Thank you for tuning into my podcast. The mission of The Authentic Networker is to inspire a new way of being with each other, inspiring each other, championing, collaborating with each other to inspire a successful journey. Each of us wants more than anything to be loved and to matter in our world. Success is a big part of that. So I seek to interview people that have something unique and extraordinary to say about the journey of success in the people business. Authentic networkers are curious connectors, authentically expanding their network. They listen to, are present, and honor the diverse values and experiences of others. If this philosophy resonates with you, I encourage you to study it and share it with your network. Let's dive into another epic interview and learn some of these stories. Hey, everybody. Richard Blissbrook here with another episode of The Authentic Networker. And I kind of bet y'all looking at this lady right now, you probably don't know who she is, but you're going to find out that we got famous in the house. We've got we got deep business success and wisdom in the house, and you are going to love this lady's story. This is Mitzi Purdue from Maryland. Say hi, Mitzi. Hi, everybody. Now I'm going to tell everybody who you are. I'll <laughs> so, just keep it a deep, dark secret. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to tell everybody who you are and why I'm interviewing you. All right. So Mitzi is a very prolific author. She's written eight books, including uh, Win This Fight, Stop Sex Trafficking, and How to Be Up and Down Times is her latest book, and six other books, and 16,000 articles that have been published around the world based on her wisdom. And one of the things that I find fascinating about Mitzi is she draws her wisdom from her late father and her late husband. And I've interviewed and met a lot of people around the world. And Mitzi, you're the only person that I've ever seen position their wisdom coming from their late father and their late husband. A lot of people, their late father, occasionally, maybe, I don't know, I don't remember anybody, late husband, but to combine the two, well, that's pretty fascinating. And when you find out who her late father is and who, who her late husband is, and you hear what Missy has to say about what they taught her, you're going to be glued to the tube. So Mitzi's late father is the founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. That's right. Sheraton with an S. Hotel chain, which he started from nothing with no employees and grew to 400 hotels around the world and 2,000 employees before, I imagine, he sold it to somebody. And Missy just has all kinds of incredible uh, stories that she's going to share with us about what she learned from her father. And then a place where Missy and I have a uh, fascinating connection is her late husband is Frank Perdue, which most of you won't know his name. But if you're anywhere on the East Coast, if you eat chicken anywhere in the world, you might know Perdue Farms. Frank founded Perdue Farms and grew that to the largest chicken processing company in North America, I believe. And the reason I have a connection is some of you know, I used to work at Foster Farms, which was a Purdue competitor on the West Coast. 
And so I grew up knowing all about Purdue, but nothing about Frank. And so I'm about to learn with all of you. So Mitzi, welcome to the Authentic Networker podcast. Well, it's a complete total joy to be here, especially since I have the privilege at this moment of talking with a member of the Feather People. (laughs) Fair to say, Mitzi, you and I are the only people listening to this podcast that have ever, ever hung chickens on the production line, which is a thankless, nasty, hard job, for sure. So I'm going to dive right in, Mitzi, because um, I, I, I appreciate the connection, which uh, actually came from Mark Victor Hansen, and and um, uh, you know he was he was being interviewed by Tom Chenault and you, or anyway, I caught part of that interview, and I said, oh, I have to interview this lady, and so I appreciate Mark for making the introduction. So I'm going to start with, um, let's start with your father and tell us about your relationship with your father. Tell us what it was like growing up, like being Miss Sheraton Hotels and how you moved in the world with your father and give us a couple of stories of things you learned from him. Oh, I'd absolutely love to. Uh, Father was a fabulous person because he was not only a great businessman, and yes, we did sell the hotel, but only at his death. And by that time, it had grown to, you mentioned 400 hotels, but he also employed 20,000. Yeah. I was one of five children, and I was the youngest. And you know, tell me if you have brothers and sisters. One older sister, three years older. Okay, if you're, if you're in a large enough family, there's always sort of competition for parental attention. And I found, I found the absolute mother load, which was to ask father about why he was doing whatever he was doing. Oh, and, smart. Well, actually, it was just, uh, I don't know, like Pavlov's dog almost. I noticed that if I'm asking him questions, I have his total attention. So I really grew up uh, asking father how he built this Sheraton hotel chain. Wow. And, now, one of the questions that I'd ask him was, well, actually, I asked this question over and over again, and he had several different answers to it, depending on what way you look at the problem. But, you know, one of the questions was, how did you grow it so big? And he explained to me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, and it started during the Great Depression, the hotels that were for sale generally were, you know, teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. And that was a period when we're talking the 1930s where absolutely nobody was buying hotels, which meant that they, that their price was just really, really low. Right. He told me that when he'd buy a hotel, this is what he'd do. The first day that he took possession, he'd invite all the people who worked at the hotel to come into the hotel's ballroom and he'd address them. But he knew going in that every person in the audience was terrified that they were going to lose their job. And during the Great Depression with 25% unemployment, good Lord, if you lose your job, your chances of getting another are not good. And so he's aware that 400 people in his audience, or maybe it's 800, these are employees of the hotel he's just taken over. 
they're probably not going to hear a word he says because they're so concerned about what's going to happen to them. Are they going to be in the bread line? Are they going to put food on the table? What are they going to tell their spouse? Well, he knows all that. He told me. So he said the first words out of his mouth when he's standing up, addressing you know, hundreds of people in the, in the ballroom of the hotel, first words out of his mouth was, I want every one of you to keep your job. And then he said, I want you to keep your job because I believe in you. I know that in a few months, this is going to be the most popular, the best served, the most financially sound hotel in the whole city. And he said, my job in all of this is to give you the resources to show the world just how good you are, because you're now part of a team that's going to be an inspiration to the rest of the city to show things that can turn around. There's Beautiful. Another, well, he, you know, he, he probably talked for another half hour or so, but those were the first words out of his mouth since he knew that nobody would listen to the rest until they heard the first. Yeah. And he said, just words alone, you know, they're good, but they're not enough. So he said, the next thing that he'd do, which would be the following day, the people who worked in the hotel would just see cavalcades of like plumbers and electricians and decorators coming in to refurbish the hotel. Because if the hotel's been going bankrupt, uh, you know, it's, it's gone to seed, the carpets are stained, the right. afraid. But he told me, that the first money that he ever spent on any hotel he ever bought was on refurbishing the areas that the guests would never see. He would, the, these plumbers and electricians and decorators, they were going in to spruce up the employee dining rooms, kitchen, uh, lockers, showers. He, you know, so, and so, so I asked, okay, well, I asked him, why did he, why did you do it? And I, you know, the answer is probably pretty obvious to us today, but I'm not sure it was back then to everybody. He told me that a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. And if, if he shows how important the employees are to him, that's a way of giving them a better vision of themselves. Because he said his goal was for the person who's maybe making beds or waiting tables or tending bar that they're not just waiting tables or making beds or tending bar. No, they're part of, of the most important part of the hotel, hotel, which is to make it a shining example to the rest of the city. So his, his view was inspire, don't require. Wow, that's good. Inspire, don't require. And I used to, you know, because this was my way as a little girl of getting daddy's attention, I'd, I'd ask him more about it. And I'd say, why did you promise everybody that they could keep their job? You know, why not make them earn it? And he said, in his world, there were three major ways of getting people to do what you want. I mean, I, there are probably hundreds, but in his world, three. One is intimidation. He said, I could have stood up there in front of everybody and say, shape up or you're fired. He said you could probably get people to do a lot of shaping up, but they do it grudgingly. They don't do it with their heart in it. It's, uh, yeah, that's the worst of the three ways. He said the next thing that he could have done, you know, there's intimidation. The next one is bribery. He said, I could have stood up there and told them, do a great job and there's a raise in it for you. 
or do a great job and there's a bonus in it for you. But he said, although it's better than intimidation in the end, it's also you know, kind of pretty useless because it's too transactional. People are working for the bribe or the, the, the bonus or the raise. They'll do you know, what they have to do to get that thing. But that's not what gets people to go the extra mile and put their heart in it. He said, what really works, and this gets back to, well, these are his words, inspire, don't require. So don't intimidate, don't bribe, inspire. I love that. All right, next question about your father. Do you know the story of how he started? Like, how did he get the vision? Why did he start a hotel chain? And what was his first hotel? And how did he acquire it? Okay, the answer is, my father co-founded the Sheraton Hotels with his roommate from college and also his own brother. And we're talking the 1930s, but all three men had served in World War I, and they'd gotten war bonuses. If you put all their war bonuses together, it was $1,000. Wow. Well, well, but $1,000 back in 1918 was probably, I mean, I could guess 100000 today. Yeah, yeah, probably. All right, and they invested it. They spent, father didn't get into the hotel business until he was in his mid-30s, late 30s even. So the three of them invested their $1,000 and grew it and then bought and a hotel? It. Yeah. Wow. They, they, they were in various ventures. But father, uh, well, father and his, his two partners, his brother and his roommate from college, they, they were sort of okay, but they weren't spectacular. But when it got to the hotel business, something wonderful happened. Father, uh, I think he had an amazing understanding of human nature. And by the way, he didn't come by it naturally. He, he worked like crazy to develop it. But he figured out how to make hotels a success. So they did buy the first one. I believe it was in, well, it was in Massachusetts. And he, with the kind of human nature understanding that I just described, the people who were working with him were willing to go the extra mile and put their love, energy, creativity into making it the best hotel in the area. So it became popular. That means it became profitable. And with the profits of that, he bought another one. And from the profits of those two, he bought a third one. And then just, oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is sort of extra credit trivia, but how Sheraton got its name. The third hotel, it was in Springfield, Massachusetts, and it had this great big $10,000 neon sign that said Sheraton on the roof of it. And father is a good New England Yankee, couldn't bear the thought of tearing down a $10,000 sign. And then on top of that, uh, he liked the sound of it. He felt that Sheraton had a ring to it and calling it Henderson Hotels, he thought he, he, that it just didn't sound, his words was euphonious. Again, it didn't have a ring to it. So Sheraton, the entire Sheraton chain got its name from the, the happenstance that there was a hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts with a neon sign on it. Crazy. But then another thing, you asked what kind of vision could have him start a chain. He told me that he actually didn't have a vision of having a huge hotel chain. He said that it grew like Topsy. And I'm not entirely sure what that means, but we can sort of all guess that it grew 
unintentionally, he said, you know, when it's like he had, he had found his niche and, and for the rest of his life, Sheraton hotels were what he did. That's that. What, what an incredible upbringing. And so I'm sure people want to know Mitzi. um, When did you, how old were you when you, maybe you never had this distinction, but did you ever have the distinction growing up that we are wealthy, we are well-traveled, we own the Sheraton Hotel chain? Did that ever occur to you as a child or a young adult? Uh, in an answer in capital letters, bold face, red font, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, no, they, they didn't keep it secret from us. And I talk, one of the things that, that I do with my life is you, you mentioned that I write books and uh, I write books on family businesses and how to keep your family business in the, in the family because 70% of family businesses won't make it to the next generation. And right. an, an issue that comes up all the time is, do we keep it secret from the kids that were filthy rich, <laughs> stinking rich? <laughs> and, and the instinct is, no, shield them from it. Uh, I don't go along with that. I think it's best to prepare them right from the beginning, because I think you're a lot vul- less vulnerable if you kind of know who you are and where you came from. Mm-hmm. In my case, uh, there was no missing it, because... Uh, like our summer house had a ballroom that holds 200. <laughs> Where was your summer house? Uh, New Hampshire. Of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, as Sherlock Holmes would say, that's a clue if <laughs> your summer house has a ballroom. Uh, and then when we traveled, we didn't just travel. Uh, we stayed in the presidential suites. So... Yeah, it was it was not lost on me that that Daddy was a great big huge success, but on the other hand, uh, although they didn't shield us from the fact that uh, that he was a huge success, both parents put a huge amount of effort into having us have. I'm not going to say a normal life, but at least responsibilities. Like, for instance, if I wanted something, father's automatic reflex answer was earn it and that meant chores and I bet I've mucked out more barns than <laughs> than many people yes. uh, uh, we we went to private schools but we also went to public schools father felt that or, or my parents I should say mother and father both felt that that it was absolutely essential to have children with an exposure to, to more than you get exposed to in private schools. And I bless them for that. I've, I've sometimes felt if you gave me a choice of a great big, huge emerald or having gone to school in, in the public school system, I would take the experience of going to school in the public school system. And I'll give you an example of why. Um, I love it that, that like one of my best friends as a kid was the, he was, he was the son of a policeman. And, you know, that, you know, hanging out with, with his family, it gave me an unending love and appreciation for law enforcement and what they go through and what it means to protect and serve. Or another friend, uh, her father ran a dairy farm. And that gave me an unending appreciation of, I mean, it's, it's superficial, but it's there of, of agriculture and 
you know, I'd, I'd hang out with her at her at her dad's dairy farm and 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 see some of the chores that she had, and uh, it was just the coolest thing in the world. I, if I could wave a magic wand, I don't know if I really mean this or not. Um, I'm speaking off the top of my head, but I'll go with it. If I could wave wave a magic wand and take families of wealth and have them do something that would really really help their kids. In, in life in the future, I'd make sure they had some exposure to public schools and meeting people from all walks of life. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I'm curious, Mitzi, about the, the impact and the chain of gene- genealogy is one of the things that fascinates me. Did your father's parents, what did your father's parents do or your father's father do for a living? Okay, the, the family business, the Henderson Estate Company, began in 1840. And I'll spare people doing math in their heads. That's 180 years. It's still in the family. It's never not been run by a Henderson. So uh, I guess it was almost predictable that father might go into business. But his own father had been a historian. He studied, uh, he studied European history and wrote books and, and taught at Harvard. And my grandmother was a baroness from Germany. Uh, so it was sort of a jump from, for father to go from his father being a historian. But his father way back and then his father and his father before him, they were all in business. Uh-huh. And so the Henderson Estate Company has continued for 180 years. Uh, grandfather was like one of the uncles that were part of this. But uh, the company has lasted and lasted and lasted. And I expect it to keep on lasting. We, and we, what about what about your siblings, your brothers and sisters? How did growing up a Sheraton guide their lives? My, anything you want to tell us about who they are and who they uh, went on to become? Sure. All right. Both brothers did go into business. Uh, my my older brother did run Sheraton somewhat briefly, but then after my father's death we decided to sell and it was a joint decision. Uh, and he went on to run nursing homes after that. My other brother ran a chain of restaurants. He was, I'm going to guess that a lot of people listening to us or watching know about Benny Hanna. Sure. Well, well Barclay was one of, I, he may have been the first partner, the first American partner for the Japanese fellow, uh, I've got the name on the tip of my tongue, but I can't come up with it. Akito, what, uh, whatever not, his name is. His name's not Benihana? No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it is a Japanese name. Uh, but it worked out perfectly for my brother, because my brother, uh, I think sort of slightly rebelling or wanting to create his own identity, uh, separate from the brother who took over Sheraton. He went to Japan for a couple of years after college, and he became totally fluent in Japanese. And he, uh, he, what, what he was doing there, other than studying economics at Waseda University, he was he was getting a black belt in, uh, I guess it's jujitsu. Yes. Uh, and uh, while he was there, he met my sister-in-law Minako Uchida, and they've been married fifty-eight years. Woo-hoo. Wow. And but that meant that when he came back to this country and he was looking for something to do. And I believe he had a master's from the Tuck Business School by then, the opportunity of being a partner for, the guy's name is Aoki. 
Uh, it, it just worked out as he spent the rest of his life running restaurants. He also ran Wendy's. Wow. So uh, I just something I want to throw in there that I think is important for the listeners. If you have children and you want them to be successful and edge you can give them, which your brother wisely got was if you become fluent in Japanese or Mandarin or Spanish um, or Portuguese, even what an edge it gives you in your career and business to not only know the culture, but, but to be able to speak the language, right? But I've sometimes thought that I, I loved college. I mean, I had a great time, but the things that get, were most useful to me were languages. Yeah. Uh, and, Crazy. And, and yeah, father spoke five different languages and he was very big on us learning languages that I can remember from, I don't know, my, from almost being in the cradle, uh, he used to play language records with us, for us, with the idea that would develop our ears. And wow. that had the spectacular benefit for me that I do think it developed my ear because I'm a little bit of a linguist myself. Uh, I, you, what languages do you speak? Uh, well, French, Spanish, Russian, and I was been interviewed in Japanese in Japan, but where it really had played out to be a benefit for me was Frank Perdue, my hero, by the way, we were married for 17 years until his passing, Perdue in a good year might sell to a hundred different countries. Uh, this is not a good year, so it's nothing like that, but, uh, but Frank was a big believer in the value of, of FaceTime for, for the buyers. So supposing that you're a big buyer in Shanghai, we, we would make a tour where we'd go to Shanghai, Beijing, Singapore, Japan, Tokyo. We'd, we'd go to these various cities in, in a trip and would have several trips a year. But I would know at least a couple of months ahead of time where we were going. And I would hire students from the local university. I'll, I'll give an example for one country, but this would be what would be true for all the countries. I would find somebody who spoke not Mandarin, not Cantonese, but the dialect of, of Shanghai, which is Shanghainese. So I'd get the, uh, the student to teach me each week and I'd have a tape recorder. I wanted to learn eight polite phrases each week. And you know, by by the end, by the time we went to Shanghai, I'd know sixty-four polite phrases. So, wow. so say we spend three days visiting dignitaries and visiting plants and whatever else. Uh, I'd have polite things that I could say to everybody, like, "Your hospitality is so wonderful," or "The food is so delicious," or "We've been enjoying our time here so much." But where the big payoff? I mean. You can guess that people appreciate you making an attempt to, to say some words in their language, and they really appreciate it because I think there are lots of Americans who might learn some polite phrases in Mandarin, but to actually do Shanghainese, which is as different as French is from Spanish, I mean, wow. you, you could tell that they really liked it, but the great big giant payoff of the whole thing was in every every trip that we made every city that we visited they're all mr big whoever the the pe person was who invited us and who's the big buyer and who were there to give facetime to he'd always yeah and it was always a he in, in this case uh he would always 
uh, have a banquet for us. And very, very typically, there would be 100 people there. And again, very typically, half of them would be people, let's deal with Shanghai. Uh, half of them would be from Shanghai. And the other half would very often be ex expatriates, that is people from, I don't know, from- Everywhere. Well, well from everywhere, but very often English speaking, like Americans yeah. or Brits. And uh, at these banquets, you know, the, our host would always get up and, and give a toast, welcoming us and saying that he was happy that we're here. Well, Frank at heart didn't really enjoy public speaking. So I sort of inherited the role of being the person to respond to the toast. And I would get up and I'd look at the translator and I'd say something that you know, at first blush, it would sound crazy. I'd say, would you translate for me? And you know, since he's a translator, of course he's going to translate for me. But and I and I do that deliberately because I want a little bit of sort of hyper attention. What's what's going on? And then I speak. I rattle on for three or four minutes in Shanghainese. And you know, I'd pause between phrases, but I'd, I'd put I'd string together all the polite phrases like. We're so happy that, to be here. That your hospitality has been amazing, and oh, how delicious the food is! And when I put them all together, and the the translator is translating what I'm saying in Shanghainese into English, yeah. which means that the 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 English speaking people know that I really am speaking the language. And then at the end of my toast, uh, people would ask questions, and. Yeah, usually they're asking some fairly polite thing, but in, in Shanghainese, but you know, at least, I'd say at least three quarters of the time they'd ask a question in Shanghainese and I'd understand it and I'd get the answer in Shanghainese. And, the, and so it, it looked to people as if I'd have a deep knowledge of this language. And then, you know, by the second or third question, uh, somebody would ask something that I had no idea in the world what they're talking about. So I would bow politely and I would say in Shanghainese, I'm terribly sorry, but I do not know any more polite phrases in your language. <laughs> <laughs> this would bring down the house of the yeah. Shanghainese speaking people. <laughs> well, that's, that is how you sell chicken around the world, right there. So well, tell, uh, us, tell us I how you met Frank it, and, and how he founded Purdue Chicken. Because that's got to be just as fascinating as Sheridan. Well, he, it was a father-son operation, which he was born into. The year that Frank okay. was born, which is 1920, 100 years ago. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, 1920. Uh, Frank Perdue was born and his father got into the chicken industry. By the time that Frank, Frank left college, uh, I guess at age 20, he didn't finish. Uh, be well, he didn't finish because he was on track to be a teacher. And somewhere around age 20, he thought, I'm not going to be any good as a teacher. And he left and he worked for his father while he could figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And then uh, in the process of working for his father in a chicken farm, uh, he began thinking of ways of doing it better and better and better and better and better. And pretty soon they were hiring people. And uh, Frank's approach was almost identical with my father's, which was, you know, my father's view was give people a better vision of themselves, uh, you know, appreciate them. A phrase that, that I think characterizes Frank was Frank 
Well, this is a philosopher from, I guess, 1900, and his name was William James. Sure. William James said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. Mm -hmm. And Frank was awfully good at, at making people feel really valued. I mean, and it, he was a tough man, and he was very demanding. But boy, when you performed, you knew that Frank just really appreciated you. And, well, he... He he began, I guess the, the biggest change between Frank and his father was Frank's father's business was producing breakfast eggs. That is, you know, a chicken lays an egg and then you fry it and eat it. Uh, there's chickens are, and I, I know you know this extremely well, but there are two major breeds of chicken. There are categories of chicken. There's the egg layers and there's the meat producers. And Frank was a very large part of, of changing into meat breeds. And then since he wanted to have the best chickens possible, that meant feeding them better, like giving them more space, more veterinary care, genetics to have broader breasts, and all that's expensive. So Frank figured out, if I'm going to have a premium breed, I have to communicate with the, with the urban public who's gonna be buying the chickens, why they're better, he figured that out, that he would need to communicate, and that meant advertising. And that meant if he was going to spend a lot of money in advertising, he wanted to spend a lot of time learning what advertising was all about. So he took a 10-week, like, vacation almost. No, vacation's really the wrong word. Uh, since we're being authentic here, I'm going to correct myself. It was not a vacation. It was a total immersion uh, study in New York of the theory and practice of advertising. And he joined one of the major uh, marketing associations so he could access their library. And first he'd read all the books that he could and then all the magazines that he could. And then he'd interview the authors of the magazines just so that he'd learn more about advertising than any poultry person before him ever had. And then came the question of how do you choose a, an advertising agency? Well, I learned not from Frank, but for people in the industry that he interviewed 60 different advertising agencies. And then when they finally, when he finally picked Scally McCabe, Scally McCabe said, the reason nobody before you has ever advertised chickens or a commodity for that matter, is that whatever you say about, about your chickens, your competitors can say it. You know, my chickens are fresh. No, mine are fresher. Or I feed my chickens wonderful stuff. No, I feed my chickens wonderful stuff. The, the advertising agency said, the only thing that they can't copy about your chickens is you, because you look like a chicken and you squawk like a chicken and you relate to the brand. And so Frank was the on-air personality advertising Purdue chickens. And did, he, did Purdue have a, a slogan that caught on? It takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. And, <laughs> and the result of this was that in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, he was a celebrity. He was known yeah. as the marketing icon. But, but he didn't get that because it dropped in his lap. He did it because of just extreme effort in studying. How did you meet him? I met him when I was growing rice in California. I lived in Davis, California for 17 very happy years growing rice. I was at a party in Washington, D.C. 
And I arrived. No, let's see. I had to leave early and he arrived late. We only overlapped by 10 minutes. But we decided that rice and chicken grow well to go well together. And <laughs> then we decided to marry. I love that. I'll bet there's a little more to it than that, but I like the way you tell that. <laughs> well, yeah, there is a little more to it because I told you that we had 10 minutes. The first five minutes, were both of us were divorced. And the first five minutes, we're talking about how we would never under any possible imaginable circumstances remarry uh, because it was just an institution designed to make people miserable. And <laughs> that was the first five minutes. And then we started talking about how it was unfortunate that would never remarry because, but since would never trust anybody, it was our fate to be single. And then he looked down at me and he said, I believe I could trust you. And I looked up at him. Wow. And I said, I believe I could trust you. And then we started talking about what our marriage would be like. And it would be supportive and not competitive and would be there for the good times and the bad times. And when we married, we had known each other in person six weeks and three days. What a great story. I love, I love love stories. My favorite movies are love stories, which oh, mine probably, too. probably nobody would, uh, nobody would peg that about me. <laughs> um, so you said Frank was your hero. What was it about him, Mitzi, that had you admire him so? Who was he that was such an inspiration? Oh, let me count the ways. Uh, among the things that I admired about him was, you know, to my mind, as far as being a complete human being, he had it all because he was, you know, a one in a million successful businessman. But I'd also put him as, I, I have no way of really gauging this, but it feels as if he was one in a million successful as a family man and also as a community man. And, so and he, he, was, he contributed and produced and made a difference? On, on a spectacular scale. Uh, well, as an example, he was, to my mind, an entrepreneurial philanthropist because he felt that Say there are 21 United, United Way organizations in Salisbury, Maryland. He reasoned that if they had endowments, that, that the people who are the staff of these organizations, let's, let's take the food bank. If the food bank has an endowment, it can spend less time raising money and more time delivering services. And, but he also felt that if he offered a two for one match, if he wanted them to raise the money because, well, it's just good for people to work for what they get. So he wanted the 21 organizations to raise money for an endowment and whatever they raised. Uh, actually it was, I believe it was three for one. So every dollar that the food bank would raise, he would contribute $3 towards an endowment. And wow. so, so now there are 21, services in the in in our area which are able both to extend their reach and to spend less time on fundraising pretty incredible so let's move as we wrap this mitzi to you who are you and what are you doing you have a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and a lot of things to give 
and I don't know anything about your finances other than what I might imagine, but I can only imagine you don't need to be doing this. Who are you and what are you doing and why are you doing it? Okay, since complete transparency and authenticity, uh, I'm 79 years old. I'm, wow. having, I'm having the time of my life. Uh, I have something that really motivates me and that's, uh, I, I figure I have a purpose in life and that's to increase happiness and decrease misery. And the focus of my life right now is combating human trafficking. And I founded an organization called Win This Fight. And the approach it takes is, I don't have any expertise in rescuing or rehabilitating or preventing human trafficking, but I do have a lifetime of experience of fundraising. And Win This Fight is about two, two parts. One is fundraising and one is awareness. And I'm a writer by trade. I, for most of my adult life, I've I've had syndicated columns. So raising awareness means speaking on it. It means writing columns on it. It means podcasting on it. Um, and I find it as fulfilling as anything in the world because human trafficking is about a, as dark as it gets. Yeah. A typical <clears throat> child, let, let's, there, there are boys involved too, but just to simplify, let's assume we're talking about a girl. Typically, a 12-year-old girl might get into trafficking, and she'll have a life expectancy of seven years because she's going to die of an overdose, suicide, disease, or she may be killed for organ harvesting. Uh, she'll typically have sex 10 or 12 or 15 times a night with strangers 365 days a year. You know, I cannot think of a greater horror that, that man can do to man. And the subject is extraordinarily dark, but that means that the good that you can do in, in combating it is extraordinarily bright. And I, I guess I'm kind of, I, I hadn't thought about it before this moment, but I kind of feel as if I'm doing something in the mold of Frank when he raised money to help other organizations extend their reach. And that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm helping existing anti-trafficking organizations extend their reach. And is it winthisfight.org? Yes, yes. Great. And tell us about your latest book, How to Be Up in Down Times. That might be relevant. Oh, I hope it is. Right now. <laughs> well, I would have it, Mitzi. I ordered it, but it went to Hawaii and I came to California and I and I missed it. Well, I'll tell you about it. I wrote it along with Mark Victor Hansen and his stepson, Preston Weeks. And we wrote it, actually it was kind of my idea, but uh, you know, the, the heavy lifting was, was Mark Victor Hansen. But at the very beginning of COVID, like at the beginning of February, I had a reason to, I'm a, I, did, I don't know if I mentioned to you that I'm a science writer. And I'm also a health writer. I worked for Scripps Howard. My column went to 420 newspapers. Uh, so I am a writer. Uh, and I've had probably 40 years of experience of writing on science and health. Well, I told Mark, Mark Victor Hansen right at the beginning of, of February, the pandemic is likely to be 
to cause misery in a scale that that's not easily imagined between health and finances and tearing the country apart. You know, there are a lot of reasons for people to be really suffering. And you, Mark Victor Hudson, with your chicken soup for the soul books, I've, I've even heard people describe him as the pastor for the, for the world. But, but having sold half a billion books that are all inspirational, here's what I said to him. Since you're one of the most inspirational people on the planet, what if you shared inspirational knowledge that you have and I shared health and science information that I have and your stepson who happens to have extraordinary knowledge of physical fitness, what if we created a book that would be, it would be short, it would be 40 tips, each of them two pages long, so that if somebody's discouraged or depressed or going out of their minds, uh, they can look up something that will be encouraging for, for what's bothering them. Well, Mark loved the idea, and somewhere around three weeks later, we produced a book. Yep, you can do it that fast these days. I love well, that, Mitzi. Well, there's I three of us working on it, and we're all professional right. writers. I can't wait to read it. What a great! I love bite-sized books. I I read a probably fifty magazines or blogs to any one book because I like the bite-sized pieces. So I'm looking forward to getting into that book and um, looking more at WinThisFight.org, which is very timely and and a huge problem in our world. You're just an absolute delight. Thank you. Of joy, wisdom, humility, and service, Mitzi. I'm just absolutely inspired to make your acquaintance and share this hour with you. And I'll bet our listeners are just begging for more. Because I know you have, that was just the tip of the iceberg of the stories and the wisdom that you have from your life. Well, you know and what I, I'm dying to share, maybe at some future time, with your listeners? Yeah. It's a story from your deep, dark past, hanging chickens. <laughs> well, we because, got a few minutes. Because I've done the same thing, too. We got a few minutes. If you want to tell your hanging chicken story, you told me. I thought that took great humility on your part, great empathy and presence for you to ask an employee of Purdue to take you down into the bowels of the processing plant and show you what she does for a living every day. You want to well, tell I'll people share, that? I'll share with you what happened. Uh, every Purdue processing plant has a cafeteria. And Frank and I used to eat at the cafeterias all the time. You know, it's, it's a chance just to talk with people. And one day, I wasn't with Frank during this, what I'm about to describe, but one day I stopped by a cafeteria. It was going back from Norfolk to Salisbury, and there's a plant along the way. And, you know, why not stop by and have lunch there? Which free I'm allowed food. Well, actually, no, it's not free. I, I pay for it, but it's <laughs> good food. I mean, you can count on the chicken there being delicious. Right, right. <laughs> so I, I stopped by. And I end up sitting beside an African woman, American woman, a little bit younger than me. And uh, we got to talking and she was 
and I totally understand where she's coming from. She wanted to know everything she could about my life. I mean, here's the big bosses, the owner's wife sitting beside her. So, and I have no secrets from anybody. So, you know, whatever she asked, I was happy to answer. But then I'm, I'm a believer in turnabouts, fair play. And so I wanted to know about her life. And I asked a question, but you have to take it on faith that I, I was more indirect and diplomatic than the way I'm just going to blurt it out. But I was wondering if hanging chickens day after day, year after year, uh, gets boring. And But I, you, again, trust me, please, that I didn't just flat out say it, because that's kind of insulting the way I put it. But I, I do believe that I was more diplomatic when I was trying to explore what's it like. And she said she actually loved it and she looked forward to coming to work each day. Now, this was amazing to me because I wouldn't think it would be. Well, she said, the only way I could convince you is if you'd come and work alongside me. And I said, well, if you'd check with your supervisor and you can arrange for me to come, I'll come any day. Well, she checked with her supervisor and it went up the line until it came to the plant manager and they all said yes. And so a few days later, Oh, there I am wearing the white lab coat and the, the hairnet and the, the bump helmet, which is this plastic thing in case something you bump into something. Uh, and I'm standing beside her. And when you and I know what hanging chickens means, but I bet most people don't. It means chickens, if they're going to be processed, uh, you put their two legs in these shackles on a conveyor belt that's moving by. And it looks so simple. Uh, but I had, I had all the trouble in the world getting even one leg in. You're trying to get two legs in at a time. And I think in eight hours, I never did get two. And, <laughs> uh, but th th there was almost kind of an advantage to that because, you know, they could all do it so easily. And, you know, they, they were laughing at me, but that was fine with me because I was laughing at myself. I, I just couldn't get, good Lord, what a pun is here, but I couldn't get the hang of it. <laughs> You've been and, waiting to drop that one on us. <laughs> no, it just occurred to me but, that one of the guys standing beside me, you know, he had to make up for all the ones that I missed. So there he was uh, hanging two at a time, one with each hand. <laughs> and, but, but now to the question of what was it like, aside, of, aside from making a 100% total grand <laughs> mess of of it myself. I mean, I was totally incompetent, right. uh, but it was okay because, uh, you know, I was being teased, but fine. I, I can tease back, but here's what I discovered that the, the work is, is hard and it's exhausting and uh, you probably have to work up to it, just your muscles. But the whole time it was, it was talking. People were talking about, uh, whatever sitcom they've been watching or talking about movie stars or about, you know, just, it was, it was like endless kind of fun talking, talking and teasing. And uh, I, I could see why she wouldn't be bored because to hang out with people that you like. And I actually asked the head of HR, how does it happen that this group seemed to like each other so much? And she said, we put enormous amount of effort into having people work with people that they'll find congenial and uh, and enjoyable. And, and then from my point of view, 
you know, I'd been making a complete fool of myself for eight hours, but at the end of it, uh, I got to where sort of my other identity because everybody, not everybody, but hundreds of people wanted to have photographs taken with me. And so I sort of went from a complete failure <laughs> to a star in the course of, of like a 10 minute change. But it was, it was fun and I loved it. And I ended up loving her and loving the people I was working with and, and working yeah. the wrong word because I, um, I wasn't worth anything. Right. Trying well, it's to- interesting that you choose that language, Mitzi, because I have told people for 44 years um, that had it not been for a policy that Foster Farms instituted in 1977, I believe I would have recently retired from Foster Farms because I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the work. And part of it was because I didn't know anything else, right? I hadn't been around the world. I didn't have any other real opportunities. So you you either fall in love with what you're doing or you're miserable the rest of your life. And I'll never forget my first day hanging chickens. What's it like? You're, you're digging those frozen birds out of the ice. And I don't know about Purdue, but Foster Farms lines went at 38 BPM birds per minute. Yeah. And you you don't slow the line down, right? The line's going. You're either keeping up or you're not. And Yeah, and if you're not keeping up, you're slowing somebody ahead yes. of, or behind no, ahead of you down because they have to make up for what you missed. Totally. Or you'll, you know, it's just you create a big mess and so I remember the first week, two weeks, three weeks. It was just horrible in the morning when I'd get up, I'd have to pry my fingers open. Oh. They were so swollen and I think I still have arthritis in my fingers from that. But true to form in anything else we do in life, language, business, sales, uh, music, I suppose, within three months, Mitzi, there were two of us hanging out of one tank. One of us could go take a smoke break, and the other one not only could hang two, two chickens at a time, grab them and hang them, but we could grab chickens, step back, flip the chicken into the shackle. No way! No way! Back flips, forward flips. Yeah. Great shots, just fire them into the shackles. I love it. (laughs) That's how good you can get if you do something uh, 38 times a minute for 450 minutes a day. (laughs) Well, the chicken industry lost a superstar. They did. They did. And they've never been the same. And (laughs) one of these days, I'm going to have this conversation with Norma Foster, who uh, I live in a Four Seasons resort on the island of Lanai. And she lives in the Four Seasons resort on the big island. And uh, I went to the concierge a couple of years ago, signed one of my books to her which my book talks about my career at Foster Farms and why I left and what I've been, done since. And I had the concierge deliver it to her along with some flowers. Oh. And I've been hopeful to hear from her, but I haven't. But I'll make another run at it because I'd love to have this conversation with Norma Foster, whose husband, Paul, founded, or maybe his father did, but he ran Foster Farms when I lived there. So it's such a great pleasure, Mitzi, to have this conversation with a former person of the feather. 
and and to you know enjoy your wisdom and your stories you have lived a blessed life I know. and you have been you have given back in great proportion based on your empathy and your gratitude and your grace you're just a a huge contribution and i encourage all of you out there listening list go back and listen to this again listen for the lessons that you can apply to your life and your business follow mitzi get her books throw some money at her causes because they're worthy for sure thank you so much mitzi for joining us on the authentic networker podcast it's i look been forward to meeting you in person Oh, I look forward to it so much, and it's been a total privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mitzi. Thank all of you for joining us for The Authentic Networker. We'll see you next time. Richard Blissbrook and Mitzi Purdue. over and out. Thank you for tuning into The Authentic Networker podcast. There are over 100 episodes to study, including another 100 blog articles at richardbrook.com.